Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. An Erios production. Menopause is coming and the men have all left town. But I'm not giving up until I see that baby crown. 39 and single. Can someone help me out? He could be balding, bearded, shorter, tall, funny, smart, love basketball. Gay, straight, black, white, tiny eyes with an underbite. I just need sperm. Hello. Hi there. Well, I got my genetic test results back from the lab finally, and the results are not very clear. Or maybe they are clear, but I don't understand them very well. It's all very confusing. And I I went to the genetic counselor this morning, the same place where I got the bad news in December. So needless to say, I have not been feeling so hot today. In fact, here I am in the car driving home from the appointment. Driving home from the genetic counselor in a really bad mood, feeling really unhappy, which is different than sadness for me. Sad doesn't necessarily mean I'm, I can't find joy, but today I'm really just, and yesterday, just feeling unhappy. I don't want to smile. I don't have anything to laugh about. And I'm I'm just realizing how long the road is ahead of me and frustrated by that and tired and uh, I just don't know what to do. I don't, don't want to do any of it. I just want a baby, my baby. I want this to be done with. I want it to be over. But I know I'll feel better. Later today, tomorrow, next week, whatever. I know this feeling is temporary and I'm just feeling down because of the... In one mile, use the right two lanes to take exit three, (laughs) Springbrook Parkway, New York City, to Taconic Parkway. (laughs) I guess I can laugh. (laughs) Oh, Lord. I'm fine, I guess. Um, no, I just being at that, that office, the maternal fetal medicine office and being reminded of the day of my, of the terrible news and the amnio and sitting there so helpless with my dad speaking to the genetic counselor, just such a sad, sad day. I will get better soon or feel better soon. Exit right to oh, exit okay. three. I hear you. Springbrook Parkway, New York City All to right. Taconic Parkway. Thank you. Then Bye-bye. use the left no. lane to keep left to Springbrook Parkway. All right, so you get the picture. I'll get into the details of my genetic testing results next week once I've had a moment to sit with them and 
figure out what they mean. But if you want more info sooner than later, I'm sure I'll put them up on the Patreon. And if you're not a member, you can always sign up at patreon.com forward slash spermcast. And while we're on the subject, I want to thank my latest subscriber, Allison S., who I think I might have missed last week, and Angela C., who raised her tear. Thank you both so much. Now, Back to this, and I don't want to be a downer, okay? So here we go. Today we are talking to my midwife, Robin. Why are we talking to her? Because I just got her retirement announcement in the mail, and it says, it says this. It has been my great pleasure attending to my patients for 44 years. You have trusted me with the most personal, intimate, sometimes heartbreaking, and most often joyous moments of your life. It's been wonderful to know you, and I've learned much from you. I hope that I have given as much as I have received. Well, to that, I wrote Robin a text message, a very, very sappy text message, telling her how grateful I was that I had the opportunity to be in her care for two months. Robin not only took care of me and held my hand through all of my heartbreak in December, but she's the one who keyed me into the fact that my milk was preterm milk and good for preemies. And without that teeny bit of information, I probably wouldn't have started pumping and donating to begin with. Now, I know I said that these next few episodes were going to be about adoption, but I wanted to talk to Robin on the show while I could. I mean, can you imagine the thousands of births she's attended and the thousands of miracles? Oh my goodness. So without further ado, here is my midwife, Robin Bradley. Hi, Robin. Hey, Molly. <laughs> First, of course, I asked her why she was retiring. I had always intended by the time I got to this age, and, I, and I'd been thinking about it a lot over the last two or three years, that it's getting harder and harder to be on call. And mm. when we were on call, we were on call for long periods of time. And it, it, when I was younger, it was I could stay up for two or three days and then take 24 hours of recover and be back, you know, on you know, square mm. one. But it was getting harder to do that. And so it was always my intent and what I thought I was um, going to be able to access was the ability to continue to, to work and reduce the amount of call I was taking. Mm-hmm. When I approached that last fall, that was not an option. And so it was either continue to take call the way I had been taking call or resign. I think it was a combination of the fact that the midwives were pretty stressed. And I think the thought of having somebody working and not take not sharing in the call, mm-hmm. even though you know, the lip service I kind of got was that, you know, we'd all like to know that that possibility is there for us eventually. Right. They weren't quite ready to make it accessible right now. Huh. Huh. So, so, you know, what I said to everybody was, I I don't know if I'm finished. I don't know if I'm done. I love what I do. I've always loved what I do. I will say the last night that I was on call, I had three births. (gasps) And oh yeah, like, it was like going out in a trial of fire. <laughs> um, but each one of them, I told each one of them, you know, this is my last day of call. And I'm sharing that with you. Let's make it special. Uh-huh. And and they did each one of them in their own way. It was such a special, they were such special births. Oh my goodness. And all so very different. We were very connected. Yeah. At the time. And the That's story. Amazing. The stories that we were able to share with each other about, you know, I was able to share my stories about my birth. I don't typically do that. I don't uh-huh. 
helpful for people to hear about my birth and my stories about being a mother and and the trials and tribulations for learning how to be a mother. So yeah, there was we had it was a lovely it was a lovely twenty four hours. Of course, I needed to know all about her birth too. I had a baby. And I had the best of plans. I was going to leave the hospital in 12 hours. I was going to go home. I was going to nurse my baby. I was going to go back to work right away. And, you know, I had all these plans. I had a horrible, horrible postpartum hemorrhage. Oh, no. My daughter had meconium. I pushed for three and a half hours. My daughter had meconium um, aspiration syndrome, which back in the early 70s was quite dangerous. Yeah. And I... (laughs) I refused a transfusion. I made them. Why did you refuse a transfusion? Because I was in the Bronx in the mid seventies when hepatitis was. Oh my gosh. And as a nurse, I was like, if you think I'm taking blood from here, you've got to be crazy. Oh my gosh. I went home with a hematic. Well, you know what it. I know. So you know what that's like. That's why I said, I know what it feels like. Yes. So I went home like that. (laughs) With the baby who was biting me, I didn't know about tongue tie at the time. Oh my gosh. So you're talking about a lot of things that I never got to talk about yet on the podcast because I was, you know, no, 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 no. I talked about all of my stuff. I'm talking about before when I was pregnant, I was going through all the things that I might experience. And and there's just so much that I never even got a chance to get into no. tongue tie and um, meconium. I mean, I did one episode where we talked about meconium, but yeah, it's a so- lot of stuff. It was a lot of stuff. I had to leave the hospital, had to leave my daughter at the hospital. So I, I, in retrospect, my sense is the universe was helping me experience all of those things, which I was going to have to help my own patients through. Mm-hmm. Weird. I, 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 and going forward, there were other things. Mm-hmm. So I had to leave my daughter at the hospital one night. And then I was back. I, I think I was gone for about 12 hours because I didn't trust them. And I was back there in a flash. Why did they make you leave? You couldn't stay. <laughs> I got, you got, you got two nights. That was it. You know, <laughs> we don't need mothers here. We don't, I we see. Don't need Even with the hemorrhaging? Well, I wasn't going to take an, I wasn't going to be infused. I had to <laughs> right. Go home. Right. Oh my God. So the resident told me that she needed to, she was there because of her bilirubin. And I was like, no, that's not why she's here. You'll have to give her to me because you clearly don't know what mm-hmm. she's eating. So give her back. Mm-hmm. And I, I took her home and proceeded to try and nurse her. I'd been, I'd already been teaching lactation, but doing it and teaching Ugh. it very different. And the amount of information that we knew about lactation in the seventies was not good. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of um, anecdotal stuff, a lot of passed on information, a lot of stuff that wasn't real. Right. So I had a wonderful pediatrician and I would talk to the midwife every day, but I was in tears every time I nursed and she was biting, but she gained four pounds in a month. And the pediatrician was like, Robin, she's fine. I was like, you should be on this side. And he gave, right. you know, take some, there was no ibuprofen back then. So take some, take some Tylenol, ice your nipples, mm. grit your teeth, Ugh. take a comb and put it in your hand. So the pain, oh, come on. well, it turned out that she had a clenched jaw mm-hmm. and my senses with her, it was because I was pushing so long she wasn't fully tongue-tied, but she had a very, very tight jaw. And now what I do is I refer to patients for craniosacral work mm. to release the trigger points in the jaw so that babies 
Babies have to gape when mm. they nurse. Their mouth becomes a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Babies don't chew breast milk out. Mm-hmm. They they vacuum it out of the breast. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, if their jaw muscles and their cheek muscle, their jaw and their cheek muscles are not able to do that, then they bite and they don't they don't get much at right. each. So they nurse all the time. And mm-hmm. that's what she did. She nursed all the time so that she didn't starve. But in the meantime, she didn't starve. She gained <laughs> a lot of weight and everybody thought she was fine. Well, she was fine. But, but I was, you weren't. I yeah. wasn't. Okay. I have a quick, quick question, a quack question, <laughs> I have a quick question. What's the, I mean, or maybe you're getting to it, but what is the difference between uh, what a midwife does and what a doctor does, an OB does? What, surgery? Medical students go from medical school to, um, to a residency. And that first year is an intern year. And when they pick a residency, the residency in obstetrics is spends very little time with natural birth, with normal mm-hmm. birth. They're really meant to learn surgery and to, um, to, to take care of complications of birth. Mm -hmm. So obstetricians take care of medical complications as well as obstetric complications. They went to medical school, understand about cardiac disease. They understand about renal disease, you know, kidney disease. They understand about autoimmune diseases. Although for the most part, most generalists, most general obstetricians will pass those things on to a maternal fetal medicine doc. Mm. So now it's get the waters are getting kind of muddied in terms of whose territory is what. Yeah. Before I left White Plains Hospital, I was co-managing some very high-risk patients. What everybody needs to understand is there's always some piece of everyone's birth and pregnancy that a midwife takes care of, can take care of. There's always a piece of it, no matter how complicated it is. And that actually is the basis. It's that relationship of empathy. And I think empathy is probably the most important piece of it. Understanding how to translate and normalize even the most abnormal situation. And to find a way to advocate for that woman in that in that space, and that family also, it's not just women but families. Mm-hmm. And I, I I remember when we first when Northwell first bought us, mm-hmm. one of the docs I had an interview with him because I said you know we need midwives are independent, and we need a we need to be a, a seat at the table in all of these conversations that are going on. And he said, well, can I just ask you a couple of questions? And I was like, yeah, sure. And he's like, so if you, do you ever use Pitocin? Mm-hmm. So, and I was like, of course. <laughs> well, but you don't use fetal monitors. So how do you use Pitocin? And I looked, I was like, what? <laughs> I said, of course we use fetal monitors. <laughs> In fact, we use them when they're appropriate. We don't use fetal monitors on everyone because it's been, a sh- it's been shown that Fetal monitoring essentially is, it really isn't a well-documented science yet, but we use it when when it's appropriate because we have a complication or we have meconium or we have Pitocin or we we use it. His lack of knowledge about what midwives were, who they were, what they right. did was actually kind of scary with the thought that they were buying us at that point. Right. Well, what year was that? 
That's only two years ago. Oh my gosh. Oh wait. Okay. So I have to ask what fetal monitoring is because I just assumed it meant heart rate, but is it other stuff too? No, fetal monitoring is a, it's a biomedical engineering tool that uh-huh. listens to the baby's heartbeat and picks up contractions. Okay. And in, in, in a lot of places now, women go in the hospital in labor, they get hooked up to these belts and they stay on them from the time they walk in till, till the time they have a baby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in some ways it's incredibly restrictive. Although at Phelps, we bought, um, we bought into a system that had telemetry. So there were no wires. So women could, oh, go, wow. yeah, cool. could go in the bathtub with it. Wow. But there are a lot of, there are other hospitals in the area who will go unnamed. Mm-hmm. You know, you walk in, you go on a monitor, you never move out of your bed. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a horrible thing to do to women in labor. And so the risk, so the necessary, the necessity of abusing epidurals goes up dramatically because I can tell you the worst place to have a contraction is in bed. Mm. It's like driving nails, right? It's horrible. It's horrible. Is there a favorite position <laughs> or is it different for everybody? It's, really, it's kind of different. It depends on where the baby is. It depends on how the baby's coming through. It depends yeah. on it depends on the woman's musculature. And and so, what I tell women is that labor is an architectural experiment. Mm. Experiment occurs between the muscles and bones of the baby's head, with the muscles and bones of the woman's pelvis. Mm-hmm. And how babies come through has a lot to do. There are just so many variables that we know nothing about. Yeah. Yeah. I had one of the docs I worked with once was an engineer. He had, he had gone through school, school before medical school. He'd gone, he'd gotten an engineering degree. And he said to me, this whole thing is really crazy. There should be a way to decide ahead of time, whether this will work or it won't work. (laughs) And I said to him, and he actually really did truly believe that. And he, he practiced that way, that oh, yeah. your way to decide ahead of time, whether this thing was going to work or not. And I was like, no, don't work like that. I and wish he, there was too, buddy. <laughs> I, I did. Well, I did say that to him. I said, you know, we could save a lot of grief for some people, but there are women that I've known that the likelihood was very small that they were going to deliver mm-hmm. vaginally, but who just need to experience the the right to a point you don't want to put you don't want to push it too far but yeah. there there is there is a part of women experiencing contractions yeah. and experiencing that, that you know what i'm realizing while we're talking is that like i'm trying to i want to keep a there's like a fine line for me between hearing stuff about pregnancy and birth in the state of mind that i'm in right now where before i would be dig- at, like clamoring for answers to all of these questions but part of me is like I don't want to, I don't want to ask. No, I'm not, I don't want to get into it, but I want to, because my listeners want to, and I want you to talk about all of your stuff. But Molly, also the piece that you went through is a piece that's, that's very profound, but there should have been a way to help you avoid the grief, not the grief, but the extent to which your pregnancy continued. I, I, I wish that I had had a chance to get a really good look at your records in California because there is no way that you should have been this far along when we found out. Really? You don't think so? I don't. You could check. You can check with, I would ask Dr. Lascal 
but I don't. I mean, he was surprised that this wasn't picked up on my on my twenty week. It was about I, nineteen and a half weeks, but so some brain issues show up as early as twelve or thirteen weeks. Sometimes it's difficult to absolutely make the diagnosis for a little bit longer, mm-hmm. but. I, I and I try very hard never to do this to to um, second guess a practitioner before me because I don't know what their expertise was or what was going on at the time. But but I I remember I remember saying mm. that, that how the hell did this happen? I I I wonder why it hadn't been picked up before. Well, I've spoken to other women who've terminated for medical issues, me- medical reasons, some who've had brain abnormalities. And a lot of them have told me that a lot of brain abnormalities don't show up until later on in pregnancies. Some things don't show up until later on in pregnancies. But mine should, my, the one that I had. My- I'm pretty sure yours, if they were looking carefully, yours would have been there. Wow. I mean, I remember the scan very well and it was, she was very focused the whole time. And the only thing that was non-average was the baby's belly looked big. Um, That was it. And she just said it wasn't, it wasn't outside of the, you know, it wasn't. A lot, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to ultrasound, it's a tool. And you know, there are people who are good at certain tools and Mm -hmm. people that are not as good with certain tools. And I know, in fact, that's one of the reasons that we are so careful about, you know, women will say, well, you know what, I really want to have my ultrasound at this lab because it's so much closer to my house. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I think it got to a point where everybody understood that my answer was going to be no. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as we were going through different staff, every once in a while, somebody would say, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And then I would get this ultrasound back from somebody I didn't know. And I'd be like, this means nothing to me. Right. Yeah. Absolutely nothing to me. Yes. Yeah. Okay. There's a heart, there's a brain, there's, you know, this means nothing to me. Yeah. And that's how much I trusted the maternal, um, the, the second guy that you, yes. went that's how much we trusted his ultrasounds. Great. Great. Because I knew that he was looking at it with, with an eye of somebody who was an expert yeah. at fetal, anom- fetal uh, anatomy. For me, when this happened, I was I mean, I was shocked and it felt like everybody around me was shocked too, that this doesn't happen all the time. Doesn't. But it has to happen a little bit more than, I mean, it can't be that rare. Yes, it can. Well, how how often do you see things like this happen? So our practice is not, it's not huge. Okay. Mm -hmm. But even when I was with the docs in my previous practice, Mm -hmm. A pregnancy that got to 20 weeks. So when nuchal translucencies became, Mm -hmm. that helped. And so there were women who were starting to have to intervene earlier for testing. Mm -hmm. And so it got better. We were able to, to find abnormal pregnancies that women and families were not willing to continue, affected pregnancies that families were comfortable terminating earlier. Mm-hmm. And so it was a DNC. It was sad. And I'm not saying it wasn't sad, but it was a DNC and it didn't have the same pathos mm-hmm. in some ways. 
Um, I would say women who actually got to 20 weeks with an abnormal pregnancy or an affected pregnancy that they chose to terminate either was because they were very late to prenatal care or the actual diagnosis took a few more weeks to develop. Mm -hmm. Uh, There, there was a sense that there was something wrong, but, but not enough information for patients to clearly make a decision to, to, continue or not to continue, or that it took them time to come to terms with whether they were going to continue or not. But to get to 24 or 25 weeks, I I hadn't had to look for a practitioner. The guy that I used right. had already retired. The guy that you used to use? Yeah. For, that you used to refer to? Mm-hmm. He uh-huh. retired. Now, yeah, because it was it was surprising to me that you guys didn't have somebody that you knew right off the bat. And I, I guess that's because it just it's just not that doesn't happen that often. Now, for for women who are late to pregnancy, that was that's a different. And we don't I didn't see that many women who were that late to pregnancy. Um, you mean in age, late in age, No, late to late to pregnancy diagnosis. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, when I was in the when I was in the big practice, we. Um, we would sometimes see somebody who didn't show up until, you know, 16 weeks. Right. And then that was the first time we did any testing and, and, you know, found anything. And, um, and once we were doing, once we were offering prenatal genetic testing routinely, um, the most common genetic abnormalities were those in women under the age of 35, because everybody else was being, te- you know, women over the age of 35 were all being tested. Mm-hmm. And then nuchal translucency came in and we were doing much less amnio, much fewer amniocentesis. Mm-hmm. And this may come, this may come out wrong, but, but affected pregnancies became somewhat romanticized in that we can do this. We wouldn't make a decision to terminate a pregnancy just because the baby had a chromosomal abnormality, unless it was devastating and they were going to die at a later date. I, I'm not sure what you're saying. The, so what, of, what became romanticized? Or well, the idea of carrying a pregnancy, it became harder. For, I think it became harder for couples to decide to terminate a pregnancy um, where there was an affected child, mostly Down syndrome um, and some Why? other. Are you saying because I, of like a trend in the in society, you mean? I think so. Oh, I think, so. I think it, you know, there, there was a program in the nineties, I think with um, a boy who had down syndrome, who was very high. Oh, I love, wait, Corky. Yeah. <laughs> he was actually a patient. He was actually a patient of ours. Stop it. His mom was a very big mover and shaker in the community. In the oh down my gosh. And I, and I think because we couldn't tell somebody how affected a pregnancy was going to be. Mm-hmm. So it was everybody's fantasy was they that's that's the high functioning child they were going to have. I hear you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that and that doesn't include I mean that show doesn't talk about the heart defects that babies. or the pulmonary or the life expectancy which yeah. is terrible, Yeah. It was um it was serious. It was it was serious. But anyway, so the, yeah. I think you know, we're seeing far few, fewer amniocentesis for, you know, women. Yeah, because of NT scans. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's, yes, 
Now, stillbirths, I, the number is like one in a hundred these days, isn't it? According to, I don't know, the CDC or something. I don't know that I can quote you. I'm not, I'm really bad at statistics. It's okay. Uh, I mean, I'm just shocked that it's anywhere near that. Okay. According to the CDC, a stillbirth is the death or loss of a baby before or during delivery. Both miscarriage and stillbirth describe pregnancy loss, but they differ according to when the loss occurs. In the United States, a miscarriage is usually defined as loss of a baby before the 20th week of pregnancy, and a stillbirth is loss of a baby at or after 20 weeks of pregnancy. Stillbirth affects about 1 in 160 births, and each year about 24,000 babies are stillborn in the United States. Stillbirths, um, either children who die in utero or mm-hmm. women who come in with already knowing that the fetal heart is gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are tough. Those are tough, yeah. too. Those are tough, too. But you see them. We see them. We see them. Because in my mind, before any of this happened, I would have thought, it doesn't happen very often. I don't know why the number didn't really ever sink in, but now I feel like, well, it's not so, that uncommon. Well, it's it's pretty uncommon. <laughs> pretty uncommon. I'm uh, not trying to scare people. I just yeah, I was gonna say don't scare people because I'm not. <laughs> because I will tell you that's becoming the that this the anxiety about women in pregnancy mm. is so horrific. I, I I felt like all I did for the last ten years was calm women down that pregnancy is essentially a normal thing and that yes, bad things happen, but most of the time bad things don't. And the reason that the bad things stick out is because they're so uncommon. Mm. And yet yet it seems to be that obstetrics is trying to make a name for itself by making all women high risk. And they're not. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you create an anxiety level in women that's wrong and, you know, the, just little things like I, I would hear the ultrasonographer say, oh, you know, this is a big baby. <laughs> really? You have no idea. Ultrasound in the third trimester is, is statistically so often off. Don't even open your mouth. Don't even open your mouth. Because then the mother starts to say to herself, oh, this is a big baby. I'm probably not going to be able to deliver it vaginally. Mm-hmm. Most women can't figure out how a baby gets out of them in even if it were the size of a kangaroo jo- Joey, they mm. couldn't figure out how it was going to slip out of them. You talk about a big baby like that, you know, um, or about the baby's growth or um, we need to induce you because the baby's, you know, big or small or I mean, it's just the number of women who were talked into inductions for all sorts of reasons are pretty high. Okay. Now, speaking of fear, I never had any fear about childbirth before. Now I'm, now I'm afraid of dying because of my blood loss. And um, my doctor who took care of me in the hospital said that she wouldn't discourage me from trying to get pregnant again, as long as I'm doing it at a hospital so that they have blood on hand in case it does happen again, but that I'm at a slightly higher risk of hemorrhaging, but not, not, not at a high risk in the general population. Molly, your risk was compounded mm. a because of your age, but b because of the um, because of the way that you had to terminate the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So um, we know that the risk of hemorrhage is higher in that situation. But I hemorrhaged the first time. Right, I told you I hemorrhaged. The second time I had the twins. I labored all day, got to eight centimeters, got stuck at eight centimeters for. Yeah. 
hours or something, end up with a cesarean section and hemorrhaged even worse. Oh God, no. Wait, so listen. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So listen, but what I tell people all the time is, in the old days, hemorrhage is what killed women, okay? Because we didn't have a blood bank. We had some something that looked like Pitocin. We had ergot, which was um, a drug, but, um, but it wasn't easily available to home births. It helped, but a blood bank is what's changed the numbers. And now that we're seeing more women being induced, the numbers are going back up again. So that's why we try to explain to people there's a double, it's a double-edged sword. So how do you handle, you know, a hemorrhage so that women are safer? So I will tell you that hemorrhage precautions are much, much better than they've ever been ever. And the drugs that we have to control them, you know, when I first started, it was, we had some drugs, but that if those didn't work and packing the uterus didn't work, you ended up with hysterectomy. We've seen so many advances between embolization of the um, umbilical or of the uh, uterine artery. Um, We've seen different ways of packing. We've seen better drugs that also have pros and cons, but better drugs in terms of stopping hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. So when, when a hemorrhage is handled correctly, it shouldn't, it can be life threatening, but it shouldn't, be a death sentence. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> you have a blood bank. I know. And everybody should give blood whenever they can. That's my that that's mine. I love it's, giving blood. Give blood. I used to give blood all the time. I used to too. Yeah. So women do have hemorrhaging in their first pregnant uh birth and and go on to not have hemorrhaging in subsequent births, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. If I have a patient who I know has had a hemorrhage in the first pregnancy, mm-hmm. A, I try to look for what were the co- what were the potential causes for mm-hmm. it and are they likely to repeat? Um, there are women who have um, bleeding disorders, have clotting disorders, but there are also women who, you know, had a four-day induction. Um, they had a 10-pound baby. I mean, there's certain things that lend themselves to a hemorrhage. Then there are other women who we just, we don't know. And so then we use something called active management of the third stage, which has us intervene um, with medication before the placenta even release, begins to release. So that the uterine, the uterine muscle is what shears the placenta off. So the way that the placenta is discharged from the body is during labor, the uterus shrinks the muscles, the muscle cells, all the cells within the uterine muscle shrink down and collapse the overall size of the uterus. So imagine that it's a sweater that got somebody stuck in the mm-hmm. prior. Mm-hmm. It shrinks, it shrinks itself down, pushes the baby out, mm-hmm. 
then continues to shrink. And as it as those cells contract and shrink away, they shear the placenta off mm-hmm. and close their huge, what are called venules mm. in, in those um, cells that are now closed off because mm-hmm. the muscle is contracted around them. Yeah. It's when the uterine muscle doesn't contract around those wide open blood vessels that we have that kind of hemorrhaging, hemorrhage bleeding, or when there's something in the way that prevents the muscle from contracting down. Like a clot? Like a clot or the or pieces of placenta. Uh-huh. Or a fibroid. Ah, oh, yes. You know, fibroids can do it. Um, abnormal, abnormal uterine muscle. So- so what we try and do is make sure that we get the uterus contracting, get the muscle layers working so that they effectively shear the placenta off and then contract down around it. So you want to know what's crazy? There's a lot of things that are crazy. Yeah. But the day before my DNA, I went and talked to the doctor and I said, how do we make sure that my uterus clamps down? And, and, and I don't remember what his answer was, but I know I asked that question and Lo and behold, um, I thought that I, I was told at the time that it was a, a, a laceration in my cervix, but speaking with the doctor at the hospital a couple of weeks later, she told me that it was uterine anatomy. Oh, it was because I had assumed that from when I talked to you that first night that there was a laceration. Yeah. Atony would have been a better, would have there been was a-, a laceration, but they stitched that and they said it, they think it was the atony and not. Atony's a little bit more difficult to control than right. lac- lacerations. You can just stitch it closed. That's why I was a little surprised, but it was more like it was atony. And atony would have been a more common reason. That's okay. why I hemorrhaged the first time it was atony. Okay. And that's okay. why I hemorrhaged the second time it was atony. Mm. But you live. I lived after it. You know, <laughs> I do, I do, I do say to myself that, um, but for modern medicine, I would have survived the first one, but I would have been one of those women whose, you know, whose headstones was my second birth, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that one probably I wouldn't have recovered from. Yeah. I asked the doctors too about me. I said, you know, if I hadn't gotten to the hospital, would I have died? And they said, yeah. <laughs> you threatened. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. a scary thought. I've never had it before. And now I'm, I'm debating whether or not I want to um, try to get pregnant again. With I have frozen eggs. Having spoken to you, you know, over these past months, my <laughs> my sense is you long to be a mom. Yes. And there are multiple ways to be a mom, to touch your maternal side, and to offer that part of you to the world. I don't think it has to be biological. I've taken care of so many women who, for whatever reason, have been unable to conceive or or who've been unable to carry a pregnancy. Um, I come back, I come from the days before our, our fertility work was really, really not great. And from the early days of IVF, of women who tried and tried and tried and and having watched that angst and having listened to those women who societies belief that, you know, a woman isn't truly a woman unless she's born children. It should give us pause in that we should understand that that there are other ways to show our maternal side 
and it doesn't have to be biological, but I also don't see anything in your situation that would preclude you doing this again. Seriously. It really will come down to what you believe that you're, what you can tolerate. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, that's, I, you know, I've been with women who've miscarried over and over and over and they'll, they've said to me, should I try again? And I'm like, you have to decide what your, what your heart can tolerate and, and how hurt you can be and mm-hmm. how resilient you feel you are. The body's incredibly resilient, but there's certain things that, you know, certain, certain parts of the envelope we shouldn't push because the damage is psychologically, the damage is just too great. Mm-hmm. But So those are decisions that you have to make for yourself without, you'll know whether it's something you can do or whether it's something you can't do or whether there's some other way you need to go on this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely exploring all of my options right now. There's just so many, it's not easy to adopt and it's not easy to foster and depending on what you want to foster it's relatively easy to well foster. it's emotionally it's not easy for yeah. me That's because different. of the loss right i can't yeah. imagine having to give up a kid that i was you know it fall, had fallen in love with yeah and that adoption is incredibly expensive and yeah for 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 me ivf has always seemed easier than doing those things i don't i know that sounds a little weird um, well, what if what if you were to uh, surrogacy is very expensive in some in some states it's illegal but it's illegal in new york state but could you imagine letting someone else carry the pregnancy i there it could happen the reason <laughs> i've always wanted to be pregnant and and give birth and breastfeed you could breastfeed even right 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 birth right I don't know if it's that if it's that important for me to have my biological material out there to go to that length of getting a surrogate. Right. Okay. When so when one of the driving forces of me going through all of this to begin with was being pregnant, wanting to share that experience with my mom and the rest of women of all of throughout time and and childbirth and and breastfeeding. Yeah. And I know that I could potentially breastfeed if I adopted. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't know that until I've had a lot. I've had a lot of people done it. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's just a lot of options. That's all. And I'm, and I, the problem is at your age, it gets adoption gets much more difficult and it's so it's yeah, it is. Mm. You know what? I I refer to women of a certain age um, (laughs) and um, it's incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to adopt an affected child, um, it gets, Easier, but as a single parent, I, so what, I know this is going to sound horrible, but I, I, I've been a single parent for a short period of my life, but I can't imagine going through a pregnancy and a birth and those early months or years after as a single parent, unless I had a lot of support. I, I think it puts women, I think, it puts women at risk. I think it puts children at risk um, because it's incredibly emotionally strenuous and draining. Children are, children are very cute, but they're very, they take a lot of energy and it's hard. It's very hard. Yeah. I mean, but that's why I moved back East to be with my mom, who's had a 
a boatload of children. <laughs> um, okay. Gosh, how many births do you think you've done? So a lot of a lot of midwives keep a logbook, and I did for the first for the first fifteen years. I kept a logbook. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's probably it's over two thousand. Probably. Oh my god. Closer to twenty five hundred, I think, over the years. Wow. So. Wow. Do any of them stand out as absolutely the most incredible? Or the or the worst. Don't tell me about the worst. <laughs> well, worst for me. I mean, there are yeah. some that were just emotionally um, difficult for me. I, the first one I did was uh, uh, just such a high, and it was such an easy birth. I mean, it was her second kid, and baby. I mean, a taxi driver could have delivered this baby, but it, <laughs> for me, it was like this was. Great. I remember the first set of twins I delivered. Ah. Uh. I remember the biggest baby I ever delivered. How big? 12, 13 and a half. Wow. <laughs> it was it was her third baby. And uh-huh. all of her kids had been in the like nine and a half to 10 pound range. And mm-hmm. the first one was nine and a half. I think the second one was 10, four. And she delivered really fast. <sighs> she would come in just about fully dilated and would deliver like, you know, a half an hour later. So this third time she says to me, Robin, <laughs> I've, I've never actually been able to experience the birth. Can I have an epidural this time? Wait, I don't understand. With her third baby. She said to me, could I? She wanted the epidural so that it would take longer? Yeah. So that she could actually see the baby coming out. Oh my God. So I said, well, okay, you have to show up sooner this time than you usually. Because there won't be enough time. So sure enough, she comes in. I mean, she was, I think she was eight centimeters or something when she <laughs> showed up, but, but, and labor and delivery was crazy. So I was actually in an OR delivering a baby on this little sky table and she got her epidural on the OR table, sat up, threw up on my feet <laughs> and proceeded to push this baby out <laughs> with the biggest head I had seen in a very long time. And, and, I was all by myself. The nurses were everywhere else. Oh my God. It was her and her husband and me. And um, I see this baby and quietly I say to myself, holy shit. <laughs> but I rotated the head, the shoulders, they, the baby fell out again. But when I lifted it up, it was like, oh. And oh my God. The neonatologist came over and was yelling at me. How could I possibly have let her deliver vaginally <laughs> with such a big baby? And I was like, um, all right, you tell me if you can tell the difference between a 10 and a half pound baby and a 12 pound baby. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was, that was one of my fun. That was, but when we found out how much it weighed, I just freaked. That's crazy. What do you do when a baby is stuck? In the birth canal. And then, or what do you do if somebody's been pushing for many, many hours, days, whatever, and it's just not happening? And then they, they go for a C section. Isn't the baby's head kind of stuck in the pelvic area? Well, no. Not, well, <laughs> well yes, like, what if I, you can see the baby's head outside of the vulva? Do well, they- okay. So that's so that so you're describing two different things. So <laughs> one of the things that can happen is that baby's head starts to evolve and we have something called a shoulder dystocia. Uh-huh. That's when the sho- the the aftercoming shoulder mm-hmm. 
is impacted under the symphysis or somewhere in the bony pelvis. Okay. That was, I think, one of my worst deliveries. <laughs> um, we've all had any any midwife or physician worth their salt will tell you they've had shoulder dystocia and and a varying degree. Some are easy, some are a little tight, and you rotate them around and they just come out. But I had one that was significant, and she went very quickly. She again, she pushed the baby out in like twenty minutes, but the head came out, and then the shoulders refused. Okay, was- my, I think my brother had that. Well, they were they they threatened to break his clavicle, so I ended up having to break okay. his clavicle. And the baby's arms were actually over crisscrossed over its body. So each way, each time I turned, the arms would go would cross the other way. Because oh. what you try to do is bring the arm out, but I couldn't because they kept flipping anyway. Yeah. And the baby had an herbs, what's called an herbs palsy, where there was a stretching of the nerve uh-huh. arm. But otherwise, the baby came out fine. It was no other ill effects, but back in the day there, there were, you know, there were worse situations that happened in the case where somebody's in labor and they've been pushing and pushing and pushing and the baby's head's not coming down or the baby's head comes down to a certain place, but won't go any further. You can actually push the baby's head up back up into the pelvis. So that you can do a cesarean section and get the head out. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, honestly, there are, so sometimes when you do a cesarean section, there's somebody underneath the table pushing the head up and you can actually see their fingers. Oh, wow. They take the baby's head out. Wow. Yeah, freaky. Okay. What about breech births? Does that happen? Do you deliver them vaginally ever? I haven't done a breech birth for probably about 20 years. Then the last one I did was an accident. Um, so do they insist on C-sections or do so, they try and turn no. No, we we try and turn almost all of we offer to try and turn all of our breaches. Um, we have a couple of docs at Phelps that are phenomenal at mm. turning breaches. I, we used to do it in the office back when I was um, in the docs practice. We just we did it in the office. Um, we didn't use medication, and every time the baby was felt like it was breech, we would get you know bring the head back down. We did some acupuncture. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of acupuncture, did a lot of um, Webster technique to help try and, and change the, sometimes the, the configuration of the pelvic bones didn't allow the head to settle in. So that because the tush was, the breech was smaller, mm-hmm. it was a bit easier in the pelvis. And if you open the, pel- the pelvic bones and muscles to a bowl, the way they're supposed to be, the baby has room to move its head down. Mm. But there is always the risk of baby the after coming head getting caught. Oh, um, there is. Oh God, sorry, I yelled. Oh, right. So what happens? <laughs> I just is, didn't think of that. Okay. What happens is the depending on how the breech comes down, whether the legs are up in front of the face or the baby's sitting cross-legged, right. Um, will determine how wide the pelvis, uh, wide how, how wide the baby's pelvis is coming in. Um, and so in some cases, it's the same diameter as the head, but in other cases, it's smaller. Mm. And so the baby's legs and body come through. Mm-hmm. And sometimes with, if you're not careful about the after coming head mm-hmm. and it flips up the diameter around the the head that's trying to come through the pelvis is huge mm-hmm. as opposed to 
cut, tucking the chin this way. And you do that manually? You can tuck the chin manually, mm-hmm. but we try to you, know, you try to get babies to do that themselves by just letting the the weight of the baby's body mm-hmm. make the head pull down like that okay. so that the head comes out. But sometimes the head is just significantly bigger and it won't come. And so that's every practitioner's nightmare. Nightmare. And the oh, numbers of, of badly managed breaches. Um, increases the statistics and the fact that residents just aren't being taught how to deliver a breach mm-hmm. um, except through an, an abdominal incision, um, which is, which has its own issues also. I need you to hear it. People need to know how to do that also. But um, they're just not trained the way they were. There's, In fact, there's a group across the United States of practitioners who have come together to talk about training residents to to deliver breaches again it's only about it's only about three percent of total births but but again if it's your first baby and there are people out there not doing not being willing to do a vaginal birth after a previous section it it just increases the the numbers of cesarean sections yeah have you ever delivered a baby whose water hasn't broken so that they're still in the sack Mm mm-hmm that's, That's cool. Always, as long as the baby's fine, it's good. Ah. I had one kid who was just, it was so much meconium. I, oh. It was really kind of. So did, I've seen just a bunch of videos online of the baby coming out and, and the sack hasn't broken. If that was happening, would you would you break it or you would leave it intact? It depends on what's going on. If I okay. really need to see whether there's any meconium, if I really think that there may have been a problem, I, I want to see that so I can get somebody in. And it makes it easier to get to the baby's mouth and nose. But if things are going well and everybody's okay, it's fascinating to watch being born and what's it's called being delivered in call. C A U. Okay. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, anyway, these are there's so much. Is there anything else you want to share about your story? About I mean, are you excited to retire? I, I, I'm excited to retire. There were reasons that I needed to retire. Right. I get to spend more time with my husband. He came close to dying last year. And oh, no. yeah, yeah. So, sorry. Um, so he is well, and we kind of looked at this as a gift, you know, very, pe- very few people survive a widow maker um, heart attack. And so even fewer survive it twice. So <sighs> um, we kind of figured the universe was trying to tell us something. Yeah. Um, and we've both been, you know, he's a, he's a cop and we've both been at somebody else's beck and call our entire careers. And, um, and although I've loved being at women's beck and call, um, my family and my husband have in some places and sometimes in my life had to take second, second fiddle. Mm. I figured it was time to put him, put him first. Although he didn't retire the way he was supposed to, <laughs> he was supposed to retire this month with me and had to stall it a little bit. But anyway, <laughs> and, but I don't know that I'm done. I don't oh, yeah. know. That I'm finished. But I'm retired from that, from what I was doing. I'm retired. Yeah. So whatever I do next will be different. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what well, to do. That's exciting. Yeah, it is. It is yeah. exciting. It's exciting to wake up whenever I feel like it. It's, it's exciting to, to, stay up at night because I feel like staying up, not because I'm watching somebody in labor or waiting for a phone call. Yeah. And um, the snowstorm last week 
to not have to worry about what I was going to do about sched- rescheduling patients. Yeah. I can't tell you how relaxing that yeah. was. Yeah. Well, and like I said the other day, um, I'm so grateful that I got to meet you in the couple of months that that I was here and we crossed paths. And I'm so grateful for all the help you gave me during that period of time. It was a nightmare and you kept checking on me and I you didn't have to do that. I mean, unless that is your, is that your job? That's good. That's okay. I wasn't paying you to call me and check up on me. I don't think. That's, you know, that's the difference I think, but that should be our job. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it meant a lot to me and really did. So I really appreciate it. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. That it didn't mean that much to you. Oh yes. Well, I'm glad that you're finding your way through it. And I do wish you the best in terms of whatever you choose to do. Thank you. You'll be fine. Whatever you decide. I think I like New York though. Do you? So I think I'll be hanging here for a while. California's crazy. No, I love LA, but but it's really nice to be LA is really crazy. (laughs) Um you could be just as frenetic in in New York City as you (gasps) I like the snow. I like my parents. (laughs) I'm enjoying it so far. So so I think I'll be around here. So if I do get pregnant again, I'll hit you guys up. Hit my partners up. But let hit me your know. partners up. Really, do let <laughs> I me will know. let you know. <laughs> you have my number. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Robin. Be well and take care. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Yep. Bye. Bye. Well, Robin Bradley, I thank you so much. I mean, I know I just said that a thousand times, but I mean it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I wish you the most wonderful, peaceful retirement. Whether you're actively working as a midwife or not, I'm sure you'll continue to find a way to help women and babies. I just hope your husband holds up his end of the bargain and retires too. Hey, folks, I'm sorry that I'm always talking about scary things. I don't know if it's good or bad for you, but you know if it's good or bad for you, so you have a choice. If you don't want to hear, then it's okay. You don't have to listen. (laughs) I don't know. I just, I think there's a trade-off. I definitely don't want to give anyone anxiety about pregnancy and birth, but I do think it's good to be aware and prepared for any scenario, and I think knowledge can empower you or help you through a horrific situation, or it can help you to help a friend who may be experiencing something. But it is at the expense of, you know, blissful naivete, (laughs) which sounds really, really, really great. But then, yeah, there's the whole blindsided thing. I, I don't know what's best, but I clearly tend to go down the path of information. I do know this. Now that I'm done editing, I'm going to watch The Bachelor. And there might be chicken inside for me, my new favorite food. (laughs) Have I lost my mind? I'm just like having a conversation with a microphone right now. Who am I anymore? I don't know. I'm going to hit the road. Peace out. Join the Patreon if you can. Patreon.com forward slash spermcast. I I hope to get some adoption guests on the show next week. I did have some trouble finding an adoptee that wanted to talk to me, but I'll work even harder this week. And I did reach out to some adoption agencies and haven't heard back yet. Oh, my goodness. I will. I'll figure it out. I've also emailed Dr. Chung. What else can I tell you? I'll give you more information on the genetic testing next week. It's all going to be great. Okay. Yeah. Patreon.com forward slash spermcast. 
Venmo, molly-hockey. Email me at spermcast at gmail.com. Leave me a voicemail at 323-741-1818. Find me on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at spermcast. And if you're interested in fertility consultations, I'm here for you and happy to talk and listen. Mostly listen. Talk just a little bit. I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope I have a wonderful week. Fingers crossed. Talk to you soon. Mwah. He could be bald and bearded, shorter or tall. Funny, smart, love basketball. From gay to straight, black to white. Tiny ass with an underbite. I just need sperm. Sperm cast. An Erios production. Powered by ACAST. 